0: Our subject matter is the thirteen principles of faith, the Yudimel Ikre Emuna. And I want to dedicate this talk to a little bit of an analog subject, and that is the idea of emuna in general. Because like we mentioned in the past, these thirteen principles or foundations of faith are foundations. And just like when you live in a house. A very important component of the house is the foundation, but no one actually lives in the foundation. No one spends their time in the foundation. Similarly, the foundations of faith are the framework, are the basis, are the underpinnings, are the foundations of our faith. But in actuality, what we do, how we live, how we exercise our our, our faith is is on a higher level. So what I want to dedicate today's discussion is a little bit about the other kind of emuna. And just to give another illustration of how this works, uh, this comes from in courtesy of my son Akiva. He said to me, he says, you know, if someone someone wants to study Torah, one of the first things they need to do is learn how to read Hebrew. And before you learn how to read Hebrew, you have to learn how to identify the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you don't have that, you don't have anything else. But once you do have that, you focus on everything else. Similarly, 13 principles of faith that we're going to be talking about are the things that you need to have. But once you have them, you focus on everything else. And therefore, when we say the word emuna or emuna, which is commonly translated as faith, it really, there, there are divergent meanings of that word, in the context of the principles of emuna, principles of faith, that's the foundation, that's the basis, that's the things that are the preliminary prerequisites that you need before you work on actual living in the house, studying the Torah, etc. However, the term emuna is also applied as a barometer of someone's connection to God. And as we'll talk about today, it's really the only factor that someone has in their life is the degree of amuna that they have, which is a totally different idea than the principles of faith, which are in the basis, the framework, the prerequisites. So I want to dip my toe or our collective toes into that subject, the subject of what it is amuna that is the actual goal, not just the prerequisites. And then when we're done that, we'll go back to the uh, principle two and three of the 13 principles, back to the uh, the underpinnings, the basis, the foundations. So the place to start talking about Emunah, the uh, more expansive definition, the broader uh, maximalist definition of Emunah is, in my opinion, the Book of Talmud, in uh, the Book of Matros, in the Talmud 24a. And the Talmud has a very interesting interesting discussion about the amount of mitzvot that we have. How many mitzvot are there in the Torah? So everyone knows, well, there's 613 mitzvot. How does everyone know that? Everyone knows that because of this Talmud. The Talmud says, how many mitzvot are there? 613. Okay. But then the Talmud relates that every generation with the decline of the spiritual acuity of the Jewish nation over time Each great leader of successive generations bundled the mitzvot into increasingly smaller lists of core objectives. So, for example, the Talmud says that King David, great Jewish leader, he says, okay, the sin 13 mitzvot, but there's 11 core categories of mitzvot that – these 613 13 fall under the, uh, under their rubric. Comes along Isaiah, and he says, well, there's, there's really six. It sits them down to six core principles. And Micah famously tells us that there's three. And finally, one of the latest prophets, Habakkuk, he tells us, well, really, all of Torah can be distilled to one thing. A <speaking> tzaddik, <in Hebrew> a righteous person will live with a that's all of Torah. All 613 mitzvos are all examples of this one idea of emuna, and that one idea of emuna is not the emuna of the 13 principles variety of it. Rather, it is a different kind of emuna. That's the subject I want to talk about today. The Talmud tells us all mitzvos, all activities that we're told by the Torah to do, are really all reflections of emuna. There is a famous essay written by the Ramban Nachmanides, one of the great commentators on the Torah, in the end of the Parsha's Bo, which is the third Parsha of the book of Exodus. And the subject of the essay is why do we have mitzvos? Why did God give us mitzvos? And he talks about how he connects it to, to the Exodus, and he talks about uh miracles and what miracles like what understandings of faith we derive from miracles, but miracles are very infrequent and they happen once in a while. And then when they happen, you have this burst, this infusion of truth, but then you lose the miracle. Miracle goes away. The sea splits, but if you go there, the sea ain't splitting anymore. So how do we perpetuate what we have uncovered with a miracle? The way we do that is with mythos. And he sums up, it's a very beautiful essay. In fact, my grandfather, blessed memory, would tell his students, every Jew has to learn that Ramban by heart. Haven't met many people that have done it, but that's what he says. You got to learn that that citation, that essay of the Ramban by heart because it's so fundamental, so critical. He describes the various kinds of heresies and how the various kinds of miracles and there's hidden miracles and there's revealed miracles and what the objective of mitzvot are. And he ends with the following statement. The purpose... Of all the mitzvos is that we have emuna, we believe. In Hashem our God, and recognize that he created us. This is the objective of creation, for we have no other reason for the initial creation, and the lofty God only desires of lowly man to know and to acknowledge his God who created him. In effect, what we're told here in these sources, like we said, the Talmud and this Ramban, and there are other sources that corroborate this, that really the objective of all the 613 mitzvahs can be distilled to really one core underlying objective, and and that is that each mitzvah connects us to God and bolsters our emuna. Perhaps a way to couch this is that there are two mitzvahs, according to the Talmud, that we got directly from God. And the rest of them we got via Moses. And those are the first two of the Ten Commandments, directly by God. People hear them. They can't absorb it. It's too much for them. They tell Moshe, no, 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 you intercede. You intermediate between us and God. This is too much for us to handle. It It's beyond our ability to absorb it. Give us, uh, filter us, filter for us the message of God. So Moshe gives them the rest of the eight the final eight of the Ten Commandments and the rest of, of, of Torah. In fact, Talmud tells us, as we know, that there is a numerology in Hebrew. There's something called gematria. There's something called gematria, which means that each Hebrew letter has a corresponding number to it. So Aleph is the first letter and it's, it's one. And then 2, 3, 4 to 10, 10 to 20, 30, 100, 100, 200, 300, and 400. The final letter of the Torah is the Taf, and it's 400. Says the Talmud, the word Torah, it's the Taf, which is 400, the Vav, which is 6, 406, the Resh, which is 200, six. and the He is 5, 606 plus 5 is six, eleven. 11, says the Talmud, Torah, Tziva, Lanu, Moshe. Torah was commanded to us by Moshe, by Moses. 611 were given to us by Moses. The other two, well, that we got from God directly. So in effect, we got two mitzvahs from God, first two Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord your God. Believe in God. Don't believe in any, anything else. That we got from God. Everything else we got from Moses. But in this light of this new revelation, no pun intended. But of this new discovery that really all of Torah, all the mitzvos, returning lost objects and keeping the Shabbos, everything, sh- shaking the lulav on Sukkot and sending away the mother bird—all of them are expressions of faith. And therefore, all the six eleven that Moshe tells us are really included in the two that we get from God. Listen to God and don't not listen to God. All positive mitzvos are expressions of listening to God. All negative mitzvos. I.e. restrictions are examples of ways that we can transgress that, that we can not listen, repudiate our faith by disobeying God. All of Torah really originates at that juncture. And therefore, this is, this is a big idea that I want to really develop that all mitzos, all 613 are really about emuna. And this is a much more advanced level of Amuna, as we shall see, versus the Amuna that we're going to be talking about primarily here, the 13 principles of Amuna, which are a certain baseline. So what is the difference between the 13 principles of Amuna, which is, you know, the introductory stuff, the preliminary stuff, the prerequisites, things that you need to have before you get into Torah? What is the connection between that and or what's the difference between that and the Amuna that really is everything? That really is the ultimate reflection of our relationship with God. So I want to broaden the subject and introduce a uh, a character that you won't necessarily assume should have a part in this discussion, and that is Noah. And our sages tell us something very surprising about Noah. Noah, of course, he's the hero at the beginning of Genesis. He's the one, he's the only righteous one. Everyone else is sinners. And he builds the huge boat, the huge ark, as a place of refuge where everyone else is destroyed. And our sages tell us, Noah, he didn't have full emuna. He was a man of limited emuna. He believed, yeah, but he didn't fully believe. Why? Because he only entered the ark because of the water. A very strange thing. You know, if you were to make a list, if we, if we were to go through the people in the, in the Torah, the people in the Bible that are great heroes, that are archetypes of unflapping Amunah, I would argue that Noah would be in the top of the list. He's the only righteous person of his generation. He dedicates a huge portion of his life according to our sages, decades of his life, building an enormous boat in the middle of the land. You build a boat, it's for the water. Why is Noah building a boat on the land? So people tell me, he's like, well, God told me that he's going to bring a deluge and he's going to make this whole place, as far as the eye could see, full of water. Obviously, Noah is someone that has deep emuna. And it's actually putting his money where his mouth is, right? That's what you would seem. Says our sages, no, his amuna was it was missing something. Why? So, quotes two verses in Genesis chapter seven, verse one. It says God tells Noah to go into the ark, and then seven verses later, Noah goes into the ark. But when it says that Noah goes into the ark, it says mipnei me hamabul. Because of the waters of the flood. And Rashi quotes our sages, and this is, this is critique to Noah. Why? God told Noah to go into the boat. Noah looked outside, sunny skies. So he didn't go into the boat. And then the waters start coming down, and then Noah went in. Noah too, says Rashi, quoting from our sages, was of limited emuna. He believed, but he didn't fully believe that the flood would come. And he only entered the ark when he was compelled to by the water. If our standard of emuna was 13 principles of faith, Noah would ace the test. However, the standard of emuna that is The actual thing that we're supposed to do beyond the 13 principles of faith extend way, 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 way beyond that. In fact, the greatest Jew of all time, the greatest human of all time is Moses. And Moses' chief blunder happens in the book of Numbers when God tells him to go speed to a rock and he hits the rock instead. And God tells him, okay, as a result of this, you're not going to the land of Israel no matter how many times Moshe tries to pray to undo that. At the time, God gives Moses and Aaron very harsh criticism. And he tells them, you're going to be punished, because you didn't believe in me. Moses doesn't believe in God? How is that even possible? If Moses doesn't believe in God, no one believes in God. Well, the answer is that the level of the, the word amuna, it's not limited to the 13 principles of Amunah variety. There's something much more different that we see here. And on that level, Moses, if he could be critiqued, it's in this area. Noah, if he could be critiqued, his Amunah, it wasn't fully complete. So what is this level of Amunah? What is this Amunah that we're talking about that is this higher advanced level of Amunah that even Noah, maybe even Moses, was lacking in. So when I quote another teaching of the Talmud, this time from the book of Sota on page forty eight B. The subject of this citation of the Talmud is a discussion based upon what happened spiritually to the world once the temple was destroyed. And it gives a list of things that happened, negative spiritual developments that happened as a result of the temple being destroyed. One of the items of the list is that men of Emuna Anche Amona Pascu seized. There's no longer people of Emuna. Okay. So if someone says they have Emuna and we say, wait, wait, what is 2019? It? Temples were destroyed uh, almost two thousand years ago. You're lying. Because the Talmud said there's no more men of Amunah. Doesn't exist. Since the temple was destroyed, doesn't exist. Okay. Well, what's the definition? What's the classification of men of Amunah? What does it mean? So the Talmud elaborates. Rabbi Yitzchak says this refers to people who have Amunah in God, who believe in God. What's Amunah? Amunah is Amunah. But then it gives us a very interesting definition. It says, as stated in the Brisa, the, the characterization, the, the, the level of Amuna that is no longer extant, that has been extinct since the temple was destroyed, it's as follows. Quotes the Rebbe Eliezer who says, whoever has bread in their basket, someone has bread in their basket, that's food for today, and they say, what will I eat tomorrow, behold, that person is of limited amuna so here we're giving another metric for determining what amuna is if someone has complete amuna by definition if they have food for today but not for tomorrow they're going to be completely unfazed they're not going to worry at all they're not going to lament what am i going to do tomorrow they'll be confident that they'll be taken care of that's complete amuna and that level Says the Talmud ceased when the temple was destroyed. I think we could create from this a little bit of an understanding of, uh, of the definition of this advanced level of Amuna. We live in a world, as we mentioned in the past, where God and God's dominion and God's reign is to a certain degree obscured. It's possible, for someone to reject God entirely, partially, sometimes, it's possible. It's feasible. In heavens, the angels can't reject God. It's not possible for an angel to reject God. It's not possible. When we die, it's not possible for us to reject God. But here, there is the ability of obscurity, there's the ability of, of, of murkiness. We, we, we just say, well, I don't know. It's possible. We have that degree of free will. And then there's people that they choose to believe. They believe in God. But then you compare their behavior and their priorities and their choices and how they live and you say, well, if you really, 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 really believed in God, would you really live like that? That's what a Muna is. It's higher level of Muna. It's not something theoretical. It's not something theological. It's not something intellectual. Like Chabatuch says, What is the bottom line of all mitzvahs? What is the goal that it's trying to bring us to? Tadik be'emunato yichya. A person will live with emunah. Not to know emunah. Not to believe. Do you believe? Of course I believe. (laughs) I'm a believer. It's to live in a way that that priorities are exhibited in your life, in every aspect of your life. That's the goal. That's the advanced emunah. Noah, did he believe? Of course he believed. Was God real? Yes. After all, he built the, he built the boat. He actually lived his life in a way that reflected what he believed. Even someone who, if you know, I we we all believe, but then God says, actually, spend a decade building a boat. Uh, I don't know about that, right? So maybe we would say, Noah really believed. He lit. He lived by it. And then God tells him to go into the water into into the ark. And the Torah testifies in him that he entered Mipnei Mehamabul because of the waters of the flood. Of course, God told him to go in, and of course he went in because God told him. But there was also maybe a little bit. He looked down and said, "Yeah, it's actually raining." God mattered, but something else mattered too. The weather mattered matter too. Mattered too. Meteorology still registered as something which is significant. For someone to have complete Amuna, the only thing that matters in the world is God. To the degree that something else exists is true, is almost independent of God in their minds, that's the degree that they, that their Amuna is lacking. And therefore, every critique of anyone by the, by, by this definition is a critique of Amuna. Even Moses, if he is going to be critiqued, it's because to on his level, of course, on his level, his amuna was lacking. He gave credence to any to something else beyond God. What happens? Someone has food for today, but no food for tomorrow. If God was real, then what do you believe? You believe that God loves you. God's going to take care of you. That's real. If you don't believe in God, then your cupboard is real. Your credit card bill is real. That's what's real. So, which one is it? So, if you have food for dinner and you worry about tomorrow, clearly you're living your life in a way that you don't have complete, complete, complete Amuna, because if you did, you wouldn't worry about it. God will take care of you. You know that for sure. You wouldn't even think to worry about it. And by that standard, by this standard of, of advanced Amuna, this person is. Still lacking there's still room for improvement now granted I want to make this disclaimer as clear as possible. Our sages tell us that once the temple was destroyed, people like this are extinct there's no one today that has that same level of a moon, but there's different levels there's 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 this, there's gradients you know there, there there are steps there are stages because again like everything. Every part of our trying to advance our spiritual lives are all about trying to make that realm, the spiritual realm, more and more and more real and more and more exhibited in our lives. Just to bring this point home, before we look at some examples of people who lived this way, the Talmud in the book of Shabbos on page 31a, incidentally a very famous page of Talmud, because one of the most famous uh, interactions of Hillel, Hillel the Elder, is found on that same page of Talmud where the uh, prospective convert comes to Hillel and says to him, well, teach me all of Torah while I'm balancing on one leg. And he responds to him, well, first he goes to Shammai down the block and Shammai says, get out of here, what are you doing? What kind of nonsense is this? What kind of mockery? And then he goes to Hillel and Hillel tells him, well, okay, balance on one leg, he's balancing, and he tells him, well, that that you disdain, don't do to your friend, that's all of Torah, the rest of his commentary, go study. On that same page, a few lines down, it quotes a verse in Isaiah, and it's a very interesting verse, the emunah of your times, the strength of your salvation, the wisdom, the knowledge. And the Thomas trying to figure out what does this verse mean? And it, There's six different items, amuna, times, strength, salvation, wisdom, and, and knowledge. So Thomas says, well, these six ideas correspond to the six orders of Mishnah. The Mishnah, the body of Jewish law, 63 books, but broken down into six sections, general categories. And it tells us that these six words of the, of the verse in Isaiah correspond to the six orders of Mishnah. And it tells us, Emunas itacha, the faith of your times, the word faith, the word emunah, well, that refers to Seder Zraim, the order of Mishnah that deals with agricultural laws. A certain connection between Amunah and agriculture. Okay. Well, what's that connection? So the Tosos, one of the, the commentaries on the side of the Talmud tells us a farmer has Amunah in God, in the Almighty and plants. Planting is an act of Amunah. Now I can think of a lot of different professions. That maybe in our eyes would be a would be higher on the totem pole of a Muna than a farmer. Is that possible to have an atheist farmer? Maybe someone who's a, a rabbi or a scholar or someone who is a sage, or maybe even a soldier in the foxhole, someone whose life hangs on a thread. Maybe that would be the uh, the exemplar of a Muna. The farmer is the Paragon of a moon, a very strange idea. But I think in, in light of what we have discovered, it makes perfect sense. Consider someone who plants an apple tree. What do you do? You take an inedible seed and you place it in a hole and you cover it with more inedible soil. Then you water the area and you wait. And what happens underground? If you were to dig it up, you'd find that the seed begins to rot and to decompose and to decay. And let's say you took an alien and you said, okay, okay, let's dig this up right now. Okay. Well, what do we find? We took a, we took an inedible seed, put it in the inedible soil and now it starts to rot. So the alien who digs it up, meaning someone doesn't know, it, doesn't know any better. And they find this is rotting. This is decomposing. No way. In, in their mind, would this ever yield fruit bearing trees? Of course not. But what does the farmer do? The farmer plants. The farmer lives his life guided by this invisible and shall we say inexplicable reality. Yes, the farmer will. How does agriculture work? Wait a minute. What? How does an inedible so, uh, seed in, in inedible soil yield fruit? Beans? How does that work? He doesn't know. And truthfully, no one really knows. It's a miracle. It's from the spiritual realm, so to speak. We, we can't explain it. But yet, the farmer lives his life. That's his job. He lives his life in a way that is exhibiting every day this invisible reality. That is Muna. Just like the farmer doesn't wonder, will it work this time or not? Is it real? Is it not real? I don't know. Will, will there be a crop this year? Of course there'll be a crop this year. Of course. He, his whole life hinges upon that. And in fact, all of our lives hinge upon that. And there's no doomsday conferences. What's going to be when agriculture fails? No, no one questions it. It's a fact that everyone lives by, everyone adopts and no one questions. That's Amuna. Yes, it's a moon in agriculture, but that's an example of what real amuna is. It's when someone lives their life in a way that they take for granted. It's almost like you walk over to the sink and you lift up the lever and water comes out and you're not absolutely bamboozled and shocked. Of course water comes out. That's what happens. If you took your great-great-great-great-grandparents and you brought them to your kitchen, they'd be totally blown away. They would start bowing down like, whoa, I can't believe this. This is obviously godly, right? That's what they would say. But to us, it's like, yeah, of course you, you lift it. You're shocked if it wouldn't work, right? It's the opposite. Running water is, is what we assume. Assuming God, making that, that theoretical notion that kind of we start the Amuna with. The 13 principles is very theoretical. If there's an idea and the Ramam talks about him or bet. About this idea, and in very abstract terms, there's an entity that is independent. Everything else relies upon it. It relies on nothing else. It, it just beforehand, it is the first cause, and it's a very distant kind of intellectual and abstract idea. It's a very fuzzy concept. That, that, that's the, maybe the starting point. That's the baseline. What is really a Muna? To live your life guided by that principle, to have that actually interact with your life, to be as secure in that idea as you are in the running water and as the farmer is in agriculture, to actually abide, to live by that. That's the goal of all 613. Metsos. So I want to give some examples of, of how this actually plays out, of people, uh, stories, of uh sages, who actually lives with this very advanced level of Amuna. And by the way, if we want to get very technical on a technical level, this Amuna is when someone lives life and sees the world and interfaces with the world as their soul, because your soul already has this samuna. Your soul doesn't need to be told about God. It knows it. And therefore, to the degree that you adopt the identity of your, of your soul, that's the degree that the Amuna is real within you. That's just on the technical side. But what is the worldview of someone who has adopted their soul's perspectives and instincts, someone that lives life as a soul, someone that has the real, the instinctual, the advanced, the palpable, the tangible amuna? How does that work? So there's an amazing story told in the Talmud, the book of Gitin, on page 56A and 56B, And for those who are familiar, that's a very famous section of Talmud because it deals with the Roman siege of Jerusalem in the uh, 60s of the Common Era. The Romans were the overlords of Jerusalem. There was a revolt. Long story short, they conquer most of Judah, very harsh treatment of the Jews that were living there and... Finally, the last stronghold is actually Masada. A little bit later on, but the one of the last strongholds is Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, you still have, of course, the temple at Stent. So there's a prolonged siege of the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a very—if you're going to be besieged by an enemy like the Romans, it's not a good situation to be in because they're very brutal and very advanced militarily. But if you had to be besieged, a good place to end up is in Jerusalem why Jerusalem had at that time still has today even though they're different has very strong solid walls those were built by Hadrian the ones we have today were built by uh, uh, Saladin um not, Sal- not Saladin um, uh, by the Ottomans Suleiman yes thank you Suleiman yes Saladin is a different guy just like 400 years apart, but Saladin, Suleiman, thank you, Suleiman, yes, the Ottomans, the Ottomans in I think 1537 uh, built these walls that currently surround the old city of Jerusalem. But also Jerusalem is a very hard city to conquer, it's on a mountain, it's surrounded by deep ravines, also it has a natural water source, and at the time it also had the benefit of having storehouses of fuel and of food that could have... Lasted the local population for 21 years. So really everything you need to survive, you have. You have food, you have fuel, you have water, and you have security because you have very strong walls surrounding your city. They could have maybe outlasted the Romans, maybe yes, maybe no. Regardless, there was a faction in the city called the Burionim. And these guys, they wanted to make war with the Romans. They're like, "Well, we're we're just like the Maccabees. They they took on the Greeks. We can take on the Romans. We'll beat them. We'll crush them." The problem is, the population inside is very happy. Got food. Got fuel. Got water. Got protection. We don't want to fight with the Romans. So they these people, they figured, you know, what we know, we'll do. We'll sabotage the city's food supply. And by doing that, we'll force the hand. You'll have to fight the Romans. We'll beat the Romans and then we'll have a reenactment of the Maccabean miracle. That was the plan. But of course, it backfired. They sabotage the food and instead of mobilizing the people to fight the Romans, they just instead caused mass starvation and then the people that went out of the city to forage for food were captured by the Romans and were crucified. Really terrible things. Terrible, terrible disaster. One of the low points of of our history. Meanwhile, in the city, you have the greatest sage of the era, Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai. He's a hundred years old plus, and he's he's realizing this is just a terrible, terrible situation, and he wants to go try to find a solution. So. He wants to go out of the city to go meet with the Romans. At the time, Rabbi Yochimazakai and his colleagues were in favor of, uh, accepting the Roman rule and preventing further bloodshed. But the problem is you still had these burionim, these hotheads in the city that they want to go burn it all down and start fighting. So they wouldn't allow him to leave. So he came up with a solution. He made he made believe he was ill. So he sent out a rumor that he's ill. And then he sent out another rumor that he died. But he's still alive. But people believe it. he's very old. We're expecting that. And people are dying all, all the time. And the Romans would allow the Jews to go out of the city to bury their dead. So his students are carrying him in a coffin. He's still alive inside. And they come to the city gates, which are guarded by these hotheads. And the hotheads... Say, well, how do we know he's really dead? Maybe he's really alive. Maybe this is all a ruse. Let's stick our knives into him just to make sure that he's really dead. We'll stick our swords in just just to make sure. Say, really, you're going to do that? You're going to desecrate the body of uh, of the great sage? So they allow them to leave. So they get through the city gates and he gets out of the coffin and walks into the Roman camp. And he meets the general overseeing the siege, and his name is Vespasian. And he greets him. And he tells him, Peace be unto you, O king. He mistakenly labels him as a king, as an emperor, when really, when really Vespasian is just a general. And the king, the emperor is in Rome, not in Judah. So he tells him, I'm gonna execute you twice. Once because you committed a treasonous act to label someone who is not a king a king. And two, because you haven't shown up till now. If I'm a king, why haven't you shown up till now? So he tells him, okay, let me answer you. First of all, if you if you're not a king yet, you'll be a teen very soon. Why? And he quotes him a verse. The verse in Isaiah. Chapter 10 tells us that Lebanon will fall in the hands of the mighty. What does Lebanon mean? Lebanon is a reference for the temple. And Adir, the mighty, is a reference for a king. So he tells them, if you're not a king, you will be a king because you're on the precipice of destroying the temple. And our sages tell us, the prophet tells us that a king will destroy the temple. And therefore, you're a king. And why didn't I come to you sooner? Well, I couldn't. I couldn't have. I was too busy. I had to get out of the city. So a very strange discussion. The Roman general and the great rabbi. Meanwhile, as they're talking, what happens? A messenger arrives from Rome. And I tell him Vespasian, congratulations, your majesty. You're the new emperor. <laughs> why? Because the emperor died. And you were selected by your peers to replace him. So now he's all, he's all moved and all shaken by this. He's like, Oh my goodness, this rabbi is so cool. He says, I'm okay. Before I go back to Rome, I want, I'm going to grant you some requests. So he makes a, a list of requests. And interestingly, he does not ask that Jerusalem be spared. Instead, he tells him there's one old sage named Rabbi Tzaddel. He's been fasting for 40 years because he knew about the impending destruction of the temple. Do you have a doctor to save him? Spare the family of the Nasi, the family of, of Hillel, the family of King David. Don't touch that family. And Tainli Yavne Vachamel, give me the city of Yavna, the city of the sages, and its wise men. Don't destroy the city of Yavna. Vespasian's like sure, no big deal. He agrees to the to, to to the uh to the um requests, and he goes back to Rome, and the siege is finished off by his son Titus, who by the way would also become an emperor. Uh, after Vespasian died. So that's the story. What does that do with our subject? So I think, I think there's a few interesting angles to, um, to analyze the story. But my grandfather of blessed memory, he drew a very deep, profound insight from this story related to our subject. Rabbi Yoko Manzachai is about to meet a very powerful man, the soon to be Emperor Vespasian. And he greets him by calling him a king. If you were to, if any one of us were there and we were, we were to be asked, well, who's this man? We would say, well, this is General Vespasian. So we would say, look at him. He's wearing a military uniform. He's got the three stars on his, on his shoulders. Uh, He's wearing his beret. I, I don't know how Roman generals dressed or how they looked, but look at him. He's a general. He's overseeing an army. Why would you call him a king? What does Rabbi Yochanan call him? He calls him a king. Why? Rabbi Yochanan is actually someone that had complete amuna. He sees the world as his soul sees the world. His physical eyeballs are important, right? They're important. And what messages are they conveyed? Well, look at this man. He, he's obviously a general. He's got that right insignia. He's leading an army. But what does Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai see? How does he in- interpret reality? He interprets reality the way his soul does. And his soul filters through Torah. And Torah tells us, Levanon badir the temple will be destroyed by a king. This man is about to destroy the temple. He must be a king. So he just calls it as he sees it. He just relates to reality the way he sees reality. And he sees reality, he sees a king in front of him. Because his worldview was shaped by Torah. Not by his physical eyeballs. Yes, he uses physical eyeballs. That, that was real. But even more real than that was Torah. And therefore, if Torah says this man is a king and your eyeballs say this man is a general, which one of them is more real? He calls him a king. He just simply calls it as he sees it. And I think there's some other stories about Yochman Zakei that really demonstrate this point of someone who really lives with emuna. It was told in the Talmud and Brachos on page 28b about Rabbi Yochman on his deathbed, and when he's on his deathbed, his students come to visit him, and his students see him, he starts to cry, and they ask him, "Well, why are you crying?" So he responds, if I was about to be judged by a human king whose power is limited, because his reign is temporary, his anger and punishment are temporary, I could bribe him with money, I could cajole him with words, if I was still going to be judged by a human king, I'd be sad, I'd be crying, I'd be terrified, I'd be trembling. Now I'm going to be judged by the Almighty, whose power is unlimited, His reign will never end. His anger and punishment are permanent. He cannot be bribed with money or cajoled with words. I shouldn't cry in fear. Again, we see what's real. To, to us, the human king is real. God, maybe theoretically, but it's not real. You know, it's like a, to people who don't have a muna, it's like yes, it's an idea. It's a, it's a, it's a concept. It's less real. Rebecca was Akai, yes, maybe he would be fearful of a human king, but he's even more fearful fearful of God, because that's more real in his eyes. And then the Talmud concludes that the students asked him, Well, give us a blessing. Before you pass, give us a blessing. And he gives him a very strange blessing. He tells him Let your fear of heaven be as your fear of man. You should be as scared of God as you are of flesh and blood. They responded, and that's it? No more? Shouldn't we be more fearful of God than we are of humans? So the rabbi responded, no. If only you'd be as fearful of God as you are of man. Why? Because people, when they're about to sin, they look to and fro, make sure no humans are watching them. What about God watching them? Well, yeah, okay, fine. I got that. I got that covered. It's a, there's a deep insight being revealed in this dialogue. Initially, the students don't appreciate the blessing. In their eyes, we should be more fearful of God than we are of humans. That's what they say. And Rabbi Yochum ben Zachai kind of substantiates his point He says, yes, you're right on a theoretical level. People may be theoretically aware of God's omniscience. They may have the amuna that's very theoretical, but they'll still look to and fro when they sin. If someone sins comfortably before God, but not before other people, then you fear God less than you fear man. You fear man more than you fear God, even if you stridently protest or theoretically believe to the contrary. His blessing to them is you should have real muna. You should personify your fear of God at least to the same degree that you fear other people. And I think this is interesting. He himself, he feared God more than he feared humans. The reality of God, the reality of the king that he saw in Vespasian was more real than the general that he saw. His fear of God was greater than his fear of human kings. But he realized that once temples temple destroyed, that level of Amuna, that's, that's already not possible. The next generation, they have to strive to aim at one level lower, to parity. Let your fear of God be as your fear of man. Create a level where it's equal. Live equally as a soul as you live as a body. To that degree, they could strive for. To the next degree, to the next higher level – it's a little bit beyond them. And I think that that's a reflection of, of our sages and the kind of level of a moon that they're talking about when they talk about this advanced level moon, which is the goal of all metzvos. And I think kind of taking it to another, another level, another element, we find statements in the Talmud from our sages that seem to be very hard to understand, at least initially. Why? Because they're describing things that seem to be patently false in our worldview. So for example, the Talmud book of Soda, page 3a, tells us, luck has said, a person only sins if a spirit of insanity enters him. The only way someone could sin, says the Talmud, is if they have temporary insanity by conventional standards of mental health that does not necessarily ring true a lot of people that are perfectly healthy that we would say are also they also sin occasionally so what does this mean the answer is that our sages in the talmud to them the reality of god was real it was palpable the fact that like the Mishnah tells us in Perkyavos, the above you there's a watchful eye, there's a hearing ear, and all your actions, all your deeds are written in a heavenly ledger. Right. Know where you came from, know where you're going to, know before whom you're going to give a, a reckoning and an accounting for. This was real. And if that's real, then how could someone possibly sin? It's only if they, they went insane. Maybe a, an analogy of this is if you have a, if you're, if you're by a red light and you look in your rear view mirror, mirror and you see a cop behind you, the one thing you don't do, you don't barrel through the red light. You don't do that. And if, if someone would do that, you say, you're crazy. That's what you would tell them. What are you doing? Don't you realize that you're right away, you're going to get a ticket? Essentially, that's what, that's what our sages look at us when they see us sitting. Are you crazy? How could you possibly do that? It's real. If God is real, then no one would sin. Unless you went insane, that's the only that's only it's only if you're sinning, you must be insane. That's what our sages are telling us. And the reason why we don't view that is because our level of amuna it's not as real. Yes, it's, it's maybe more real than it's to, than being totally theoretical. But who knows the 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 gulf separating our amuna from what real amuna that we're trying to strive for, and that is the goal of 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 all of mitzvos. But I want to uh again return to that. Caveat to that disclaimer that I gave at the beginning. This is all by design. The Talmud makes it clear. Once the temple was destroyed, it's no longer possible for us to have complete imuna. There's levels. We could try to strive to make it more real, but it's never going to reach the level for us. You know, the the degrees that we could achieve are somewhat capped. Our spiritual capacities have shrunk and therefore men of complete emuna don't really exist anymore. In fact, there is a teaching in Perk that says if there is no flour, there is no Torah. So simply stated, what that means is is that if you don't have food, how could you possibly focus on studying? You have to have food in order to study. That's a simple interpretation of that of that statement. The problem that the commentaries pose is it doesn't say that. It says if you have no flour, you have no Torah. What it should have said is if you have no bread, you have no Torah. You can eat flour. Flour makes bread. So why does it say if you have no flour, you have no Torah? It should have said if you have no bread, you have no Torah. So one of the commentaries, the Maharal, he tells us very fascinating idea. Remember our sages gave us a definition of complete amuna. The definition of complete amuna someone has food for today but not for tomorrow. If you have complete amuna you're not worried. You don't say, "Well, what am I going to eat tomorrow? I'm going to starve tomorrow." You don't you're not worried at all because you know God will provide. However, that level of complete amuna is extinct. People like that don't exist anymore. Temple's been destroyed. Spiritual capacities have been diminished. There's no longer people of complete amuna, as classified by someone who has food today but not for tomorrow and doesn't worry about it. So for us to have peace of mind, what do we need? We need food for today and food for tomorrow. What does it mean, food for tomorrow? That's flour. Well, if someone has flour, it means that they have a plan not only for food for today but a way of making tomorrow's bread. And therefore, our sages are telling us, you have to have flour in order to study Torah properly. Because, yes, theoretically, or at least in the past, there were people who had complete, complete, complete amunah. was totally real. They, even without flour, they're, they're ready to go. They, they don't need the flour to study. But for us, if there is no flour, there is no Torah. Because for us, we're not capable of having complete amunah. But I think, you know, as we're digging into the 13 principles of Amuna it's very important to have this recognition, this realization that this is really preliminary stuff. This is the theoretical component of it. And we have that. Once we have that, that's vital. It's necessary to the ABCs. But the real work begins once that's been accomplished. We have a theoretical emuna. Let's take that and translate that into a more practical, tangible, real, instinctive amuna. And of course – The degree between starting point and the end point is essentially infinite because even Moses didn't reach the complete, 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 complete (laughs) whatever that means. In fact, our sages tell us that the only entity that has complete, complete, complete emunah, whatever, that on that level is God. And therefore, by definition, we're not perfect. And therefore, unless you are perfect and only God's perfect, can you have that? So we're all flawed, but how flawed are we? and let's try to of course improve to the degree that we can and the more that we make the spiritual realm real the more that we treat it like the farmer treats agriculture it's something that you just assume is true you start living by that reality you start living with the Muna, in the words of the prophet khabak that's as that's how we know how we are advancing ourselves spiritually maybe just one way to kind of track our progress I think a good barometer of Imuna is prayer. Because for some people, prayer is mindless word babbling. For others, it's talking to God. You know, if, if you were to talk with the president, or if your political inclinations are such that it's, you don't like this president, the previous president, whatever it may be, if you were to talk to someone like that, You'd be excited, maybe a little terrified. You wake up early, you prepare your lines beforehand. Well, if you're talking to God, remember, God does not have there's no there's no checks and balances, there's no term limits, there's no restrictions on power. Why would we not have trepidation and joy as one when we're talking to God? Well, the answer is because it's not real. We don't have real amuna. If we did. If we really believe we're talking to God, then it would be the same, maybe even greater, as talking to a human president or even a human king. But you know what? There's room for us to grow. And the objective of all of mitzvos, life so to speak, in the edifice that is built upon the foundation of 13 principles, is oriented around bridging the gap between what we theoretically know and how we live and that is the advanced emuna that is the goal of the 613 mitzvos